Now, I'd like to talk for about 15 minutes about the topic I mentioned this morning, uh, quantitative hopelessness and the immeasurable moment. And I hope that that'll make sense before we're done. I've heard uh, often the contrast made between spending an hour in Sunday school once a week and watching television about 20 hours a week. And the implication or the point that's usually made is that there's scarcely any hope that in this one hour on Sunday morning we can counteract the fairly secularist, humanist viewpoint that is whether overtly or covertly uh, ministered through the television set. That sort of observation creates what I call quantitative hopelessness. It gives the impression that life-changing impact and influence is directly proportionate to the quantity of time spent under a particular influence. And I think uh, that this way of assessing the value of influences on our young people as well as ourselves as adults is wrong for two reasons. I think it's wrong first because it obscures the problem with evil. And then secondly, I think it's wrong because it, it obscures the power of a holy moment. And I'll try to explain what I mean by each of those two mistakes. First of all, it obscures this, this uh, quantitative way of thinking, obscures the problem with evil in the world. It gives the misleading impression that the approach to take towards harmful influences, say on television, is to balance them with good influences. That seems to be the approach. And so it assumes that the best or the only way to counteract the hours which we uh, spend uh, being entertained by the world and being taught to love the world is to spend a corresponding quantity of time being entertained or taught by God or God's people so as to balance out the evil influences. And the underlying assumption to that assumption seems to be that either it's okay or inevitable that our kids or ourselves will, in fact, entertain ourselves with secularist TV programs or unedifying TV programs. Um, I don't think either of those is the case. I don't think it's inevitable, and I don't think it's okay. First of all, I don't think it's okay to entertain ourselves with what we would judge to be unedifying TV programs. Paul taught that we ought to do only those things which build up rather than tear down. And I have the feeling that many people in the church don't assess right and wrong on that continuum. They ask, oh, there's nothing wrong here. They're not doing anything wrong. When really what they ought to be saying is, is it edifying, building me up, making me a better Christian, a better person, 
because Paul seemed to think that that's what the goal or the aim of all of life should be, not just uh, finding those things that we can judge to be uh, not very harmful. Uh, I would say that it's true that most TV programs are not edifying. The few that I see when I see them don't seem to me to be the kind that would leave me at the end of the program rejoicing more in God, being more inclined to obey Him, feeling stronger affection for Christ, more zealous to do good. They just don't. Now, I think a follower of Christ will only want to do things, in fact, that cause his faith to be more fervent and cause him to improve in his expression of love. Now, that last one is very carefully stated. He will uh, expose himself to those things which will make him a better minister, which means I'm not condemning lock, stock, and barrel all exposure to the world, whether in drama, movies, TV, or whatever. There may be those things which, in fact, do equip us better to minister or uh, edify us. I leave open that possibility. I just don't think that's very common, and I don't think enough Christians ask themselves the right question. So it's not okay. It's not okay to entertain ourselves with unedifying TV shows. The second assumption was that, well, it's inevitable. It's just inevitable. And I don't think it's inevitable for two reasons, or there are two possibilities why. One, you can decide not to own a TV. Now, that's tough because you'll have to turn down many gifts if you do that because your relatives won't be able to stand it that you don't have a TV. They'll try to give you one. The other one is the more common one, and that is have a TV, but set yourself a very uh, rigorous and carefully planned guideline for how to use it. Christian parents will not use the TV as a babysitter. They will be more astute than that. They won't just set their child there to get the child out of their hair and turn on the tube and walk away. I don't think a responsible Christian parent will use the TV like that, although many, many parents do. So the problem of evil uh, is not how to entertain ourselves X number of hours with the world and then balance it out with X number of hours with church or Christian friends or uh, devotions or whatever. That just obscures the whole issue of whether or not we should in fact be entertaining ourselves at all with things that tear down faith. I think, on the contrary, we should rather do what Paul says and fill our minds with whatever is true, honorable, pure, lovely, gracious, excellent, worthy of praise. So the first reason that I think it's wrong just to think quantitatively about the influences, whether of TV or Sunday school, is that it obscures the issue of the problem of evil in the world and how to handle it. Now the second reason why I think it's wrong just to assess Sunday school quantitatively and say, well, one hour, what's one hour of Sunday school against 20 hours of TV or school or, or whatever? The second reason that's a problem, and we ought not to use it, is because it either overlooks or obscures the value of a holy moment. And what I have in mind here is tremendously encouraging. It starts to get at what 
uh, Barb was mentioning what I mentioned earlier. Tremendously encouraging for teachers, but all those involved in any kind of counsel or advice or ministry of any sort. I think it includes all of us. This holy moment is what I would call the immeasurable moment. What the quantitative approach overlooks or obscures is the lasting, transforming power of an insight. An insight that can come in a moment and change a life forever. It took one Sunday school session to turn Barb around with uh, my heart, Christ's home. That's what I mean by the immeasurable moment. The impact of a given moment because of a word spoken can be all out of proportion to the amount of time it takes to do it. And we have to keep in view the power of an immeasurable moment. And I want to illustrate this from reading and from counseling and then from classroom experience, and then I'll be done. What I've learned from about 20 years of serious reading, I say 20, it hasn't been quite 20, that takes me back to 15 years old. I didn't start to read until I was about 17. I hated to read until I was in a, a junior year, a junior in high school. So I started reading seriously, though. I got real serious about reading, and I've been serious about reading ever since. So there's been about 20 years I've been reading. And what I have learned is this. It is sentences that change your life, not books. I don't know if that's been your experience, but I think for the most part that's the case. What changes a life is a new glimpse into reality or truth or some powerful challenge that comes to us or some resolution of a long-standing dilemma that we've had. And most of those, the insight, the challenge, or the resolution, are usually embodied in a very short little space, a paragraph or a sentence, and whammo, it hits home. And we remember it, and it affects us for our whole life long. I do not remember 99% of what I read. That may just be me because I have a lousy memory. I think it's pretty typical. I don't remember 99% of what I read. But if the 1% is life-changing insight into reality, I won't begrudge the 99%. I'll suffer that and accept it as my own frailty. Usually for me, life-changing insight, and I have been changed by reading, comes in a moment, in a paragraph, in a sentence, not in a book. I don't remember books whole. That, by the way, uh, really affects me, my teaching. I, I do not encourage students to read a lot when I teach. And I love the title of the InterVarsity book, How to Read Slowly. You read thousands of books on how to read fast. And all that does is encourage us not to read at all because passing your eyes over black marks on a page and coming to the end and remembering a few packs is not reading. Reading is being changed and interacting with what you read. Now, here's some examples of immeasurable moments in my life from reading. You know who I'm going to start with first. 
Jonathan Edwards wrote 70, or is it 73 resolutions when he was in college, lifetime resolutions, and I have never forgotten number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. I have never forgotten that. That was a, that, that sentence has meant more to me than thousands of other sentences than I've ever read. Live with all your might while you live. Don't just drift through life and limp through life. Live. Number two, in his religious affections, he said, true religion is in great measure, consists in great measure in holy affection. I had never read a book. It's about 400 pages or so, and I don't remember most of what's in it. But I'd never read a book that showed that true religion consists very much in holy affections. Now, that's just his 18th century word for emotions. I had been brought up to think uh, fact, faith, feeling, fact, faith, feeling, fact, faith, feeling, keep it in that order and uh, if the feeling drops off the end, it's just a caboose, you won't miss anything anyway. That isn't true. The New Testament is shot through with demands that are so radical that they do demand joy, peace, hope, gratitude. I hesitate to mention love because you'd all jump up and say, love's not a feeling, love's not a feeling. But if you read 1 Corinthians 13 and how it's defined, you can't get away from the fact that love is not only a feeling, but is at least partly a feeling. For example, love is not jealous. Jealousy is a feeling. And if you love, you don't have that feeling. So that was, a, that was another staggering sentence, uh, an immeasurable moment to hear Jonathan Edwards say and defend, true religion in great part consists in holy affections. St. Paul, now of course the Bible, is just full of such sentences, but I'll just mention one because it might tip you off and help you understand me and a lot of my preaching. I wonder what sentence you think I would pick out of St. Paul as the immeasurable moment that stands out above all others from 1968 to the present. It's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. That sentence hit me my freshman year in seminary like a load of bricks because all of Paul's theology is in it just about. That intermingling of the sovereign work of God in our lives with our effort. You work for he is working to will and to do. Next person, C.S. Lewis. This sentence the first page of his weight of glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what a weak, what he cannot imagine what is meant 
by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that sentence, along with several others, converted me into being what I've called a Christian hedonist, namely, that what Jesus wants from us is not the cessation of the desire to be happy, but the heightening of the desire to be happy until it's so intense we won't be satisfied with anything but God as the fulfillment of our joy. Then, finally, on reading St. Augustine. Two sentences from the Confessions. I first read the Confessions of Augustine as a sophomore in college, I think. It was in Western world uh, literature, and I can't remember when I took that course, but my first or second year in college, and two sentences have shaped me very greatly. One, I have no hope at all but in the great mercy, in, in thy great mercy. Grant what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. Grant what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. It's really the same as Philippians 2, 12 and 13, but stated very, very powerfully. The, the impact it had was to show me that the book I was reading at the time, Joseph Fletcher's Situation Ethics, was wrong because Fletcher argued love cannot involve feelings because it's commanded. You can't command emotions, therefore love must be an action, and therefore uh, it doesn't involve any feelings. That's not right. There's a theological mistake in Fletcher's argument, namely the assumption that God can't command what we can't give without his help. But he can command what we can't give without his help because he can give the help. And Augustine says, grant what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. The, the context in the confessions was sexual continency. Augustine was a raunchy man. He was very... Uh, polluted sexually before he became a Christian. And after he became a Christian, his problem with sexual temptation did not end. And he was talking about sexual continency, containing himself and not being uh, illicit in his sexual relations. And he said, I cannot do it. Grant what thou commandest, then command what thou wilt. And then the other sentence that he said, I didn't see this one until, I can't remember when it was, but uh, I have always struggled with the problem of how to love a sunset, a wife, a child, chocolate ice cream, popcorn, etc., and not have that compete with my allegiance to God. I don't know if you've ever struggled with that. How can you stand before a beautiful painting or a sunset and say, that is beautiful, I love it, and not have God look down and say, hey, you're supposed to love me, not that. Here's what Augustine said. For he loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee which he loves not for thy sake. That was an immeasurable moment when I read that sentence. He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee that he loves not for thy sake. That bears a lot of pondering, doesn't it? We can love people, things, sunsets, food, for Jesus' sake. That's the end of my list. It could go on and on and on with regard to uh, books. The point is, uh, life-changing moments come in sentences 
and paragraphs not in long, long remembrances of whole books. Lights go on, our hearts are strangely warm, and experience comes of an immeasurable moment, and we are changed decisively. And now let me illustrate the same thing more briefly from counseling. Teachers sometimes wonder, is it worth it to spend all the time in counseling, say, a, a freshman with a problem at Bethel, in your situation here in Sunday school, perhaps, or if you're a teacher at school? Is it worth it? The person who thinks quantitatively might say, look, there is no point. What's one hour of counseling against a problem that's been in the making for 17 years? Or you might say just the opposite. Uh, one hour is way too long because you're not going to make an impact anyway and you've got lots more important things to do. In other words, to think quantitatively can mis mislead you in both directions. So what I have learned from my experience over at Bethel is that we ought not to create that kind of quantitative hopelessness but ought to realize this amazing thing. Whether a session of counseling is long or short, it can contain an immeasurable moment. I have had students come back to me years later and say, do you remember when you said to me one afternoon and then they give a sentence? No, I don't remember that. You won't believe what difference that made. For example, it's made the difference between a vocational choice, it's made the difference between what graduate school they go to, for some, it meant the ending of an engagement or the giving up of a habit. Very significant decisions have happened. I didn't know they'd happened, and the time was either long or short, but the decision, the decisive thing, was the sentence they remembered in the counseling situation, that immeasurable moment. And parents, that's a great encouragement to us. Don't ever begrudge those minutes with your children in counseling and conversation. I didn't have much time with my dad. He was gone three quarters of the year, not even in the house, traveling all over the country. Not many times together, not much, but some sentences went home like daggers. Here too. He said, and this has been helpful again and again in trying to find the, the, the Lord's will for my life. He said, you've heard it probably, Keep the room where you are very clean and orderly. And the Lord will open the door into the next room in his time. Never forgotten that. You know what that's done to me? It's made me work hard at the task at hand and not always be looking way down there wondering what's going to become of my life day after tomorrow or in years. Work on the present. He who is faithful in the little, he'll be given much in the end. Thank you, Daddy. The second one was much more recent. He repeated it to me two weeks ago. That's how I remembered that. He had written it to me as a sophomore in college. And the sentence goes like this. Now, my mother's been dead for six years, so uh, it had a different application this time than it did in my sophomore year in college. He said in a letter, if you are too busy to write your mother, you are too busy. That's all. And when my dad says that, I know my lifestyle's got to change. And he, you know, it's just like a dagger. That's right. Mom is more important than sitting at the, sitting at the pizza parlor, parlor till midnight on Friday or whatever I was doing. I don't even remember. 
Finally, let me illustrate with the classroom experience this immeasurable moment. Scott Haifman, who joined this church by mail last fall, uh, he sent a tape of a testimony, and he and Debbie joined the church. You'll get to meet them next summer, I hope. He's in Germany studying theology at the University of Tübingen, probably in Israel by now. He's going there for a year. Took a class from me in January 1976 in interim. It's a three-week class. There were 25 or so students in the class, and uh, many of them expressed appreciation. It was a class on Ephesians and said that they had been changed more or less. But for Scott, Ephesians, three weeks, 1976, was a Copernican revolution, to use his words, in his life. He's told me how up to that point he was more or less sour on education, more or less sour, especially on the Bible department at Bethel. And after that course, he was utterly new in his relation to theology and to many theological truths. For example, his concept of God was turned on its head because of the majesty of God's sovereignty shown in Ephesians 1. The centrality of hope to the Christian faith shone like a light in his thinking based on chapter 2, verse 7. The overarching purposes of God started to fall into place. The place of Israel in its relationship to the church and history started to fall into place. It was one of those experiences that creates a new destiny for a person, as he explained it to me later. He had taken dozens of other courses. He came out the same man. He went in. He took Ephesians, and his life was utterly turned around because of it. The anthropologists tried to get him. Don Larson and Tom Carell, he battled with them his senior year. They wanted him so bad for graduate school, and he could not let go. Or better to say, theology could not let Scott Haifman go from Ephesians. Three weeks in spite of all the other courses that he'd ever taken. And the lesson I learned from that is never, teachers, never fall prey or fall victim to quantitative hopelessness. It is not valid. It is not true. And I put it strongly like this in conclusion. If Scott were the only person I'd ever taught in those six years, or better to say it like this, if what happened to Scott Haithman were the only thing that happened in six years of teaching at Bethel, I'd do it again. I'd spend all six years with all the hundreds of other students, and of course there were many other good things that happened. But that to me shows the value of an immeasurable moment or an immeasurable January. So don't you ever think that a 30-minute lesson on Sunday morning can't compete with 20 hours of TV. Oh, yes, it can, because we believe in the Holy Spirit and because truth is powerful. Never underestimate the power of truth.